Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hey, hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Patrick Sheehan, one of your hosts of the channel. Today, we're going to be talking with John Pat Leary, Associate Professor of English at Wayne State, about his new book, Keywords, The New Language of Capitalism, out in 2018 from Haymarket Books. First, I'd like to just give a little intro to the book. Keywords chronicles the rise of a new vocabulary in the 21st century, from Silicon Valley to the White House, from kindergarten to college, and from the factory floor to the church pulpit. We're all called to be, quote, innovators and entrepreneurs, to be curators, to be of an ever-expanding roster of competencies to become, quote, resilient and, quote, flexible in the face of insults and injuries we confront at work. The book is organized alphabetically, uh, like a dictionary, um, and Keywords explores the history and sort of common usage of the major terms in the everyday languages, language of capitalism. Because the words in this book have been, have so successfully infiltrated everyday life uh, in the English-speaking world, their meanings often seem self-evident or benign. You know, who could who could be against, quote, empowerment after all? Keywords is a wonderful book because it uncovers sort of the unexpected histories and the political interests behind a lot of these words that we find slipping from all of our mouths, passion, innovation, wellness, uh, and thus helps elucidate the ideas and ideologies that shape our current political moment. And with that introduction, I'd like to uh, welcome John Pat to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. Let me ask you first. It's a very unique book. Can you tell me how you came to write this? What made you want to, how did you come to this point and what made you want to write a book that sort of deconstructs all of our language today? Well, thanks for calling it a very unique book because I think of it as being part of a, I think it's being sort of imitating a a well-worn model in a lot of ways since the original keywords is Raymond Williams' idea. and, And that was my major, I guess, uh, model um, and inspiration. And then, you know, there's been more recently this kind of uh, um, outcropping and academic uh, press of keywords for different kind of fields, like keywords for American cultural studies is a book I teach a lot, for example. So there's this kind of, I don't know what is really behind that, but I uh, return to... The model that uh, Williams started in his book Keywords, where he, um, in a more kind of, um, I guess, uh, uh, sorry, Patrick, this is something you'll have to edit out. But in a when Raymond Williams' book is a bit less focused on the contemporary moment, it's a bit less. Uh, relying on journalistic evidence and it's a bit more uh, it's a bit less uh i guess jocular than mine is in tone um but that's the that's the model the idea of using language as a key both in the sense of uh something that is important uh, and that registers something important or dominant in a society or hegemonic in a society uh but also something that unlocks something that is a way of prying open 
meaning that might otherwise be elusive or um, invisible to us. And, you know, that comes out of that uh, British Marxist um, tradition that Williams was a part of that's both um, really invested in popular culture and, and, and what it can teach us and what political power and potential it has, uh, but also just invested in the, in, in the idea of, of looking at what's around us and trying to communicate and trying to understand it in a way that's accessible and, um, and that makes sense to, to the average person. And that was what, sort of what I was trying to do with this book. Um, where it came from uh, besides that was just my own irritation. I mean, it's a book that's a kind of a labor of, uh, of the labor of hatred, I guess you could say, you know, in the sense that, um, like all the, all the kind of language I'm talking about, uh, is, is stuff that I find really exasperating, irritating, objectionable, sometimes dispiriting, depressing. Um, and so it began with me, um, getting angry at seeing the word innovation everywhere and hearing it everywhere and also just being puzzled by the vagueness of the word and, and the, especially the vagueness with which it was used and trying. So I thought, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of understand um, where it was coming from. And I guess it's, you know, my inclination as a reader and a sort of scholar, I guess, to, to try to um, respond to it in the form of a lengthy written exercise. <laughs> so that's, that's where it started. And then, you know, it was like, I would, I began it without really knowing what I was going to do with it, but I started with innovation and then um, I just sort of kept finding more things to be both irritated and curious about. And that led to the, eventually to the book. If I can ask, um, you know, a lot of social theorists and Marxists uh, have varied understandings of sort of the relationship between capitalism's material relations and then like ideology where I would put language and things like that. You know, some people think language and ideology is very much determined by by what's going on in the economy. Uh, you know, other scholars posit that, you know, ideology then in turn like shapes economy. And so like in this book, you are, you know, you're clearly showing how those two are talking to each other, how capitalism's organization today is expressed sort of in this language. But how do you, you know, w without having to go super deep into your theory, like how do you think about the relationship between those two? Is, is language determined, how determined is language by, by our economic relations? How much opportunity is there in language to like, to question and shape those relations? How do you think about, about the connection between those two? Well, I mean, I, I guess I'm sort of an uh, orthodox um, Williamsian about that particular question in the sense that, uh, and kind of a Gramscian about it, because uh, Williams in his in his his entry on the word hegemony, which he is one of the entries in his book, um, emphasizes uh, and his his definition of ideology i mean he he emphasizes the fact that these are both these are terrain terrains of cultural struggle um and cultural domination and i mean the simple maybe too simple answer to your question which is a sort of 
this ancient question about you know the relationship of the between the base and the superstructure or something is to just say that in, in the case of um, language in particular, everyday language, especially, you know, the relationship is just a dialectical one. I mean, it, it's not a, it's, it's not one that can be identified as being either um, constitutive of economic relations or totally determined by them. And that's maybe that's like an, an easy, an easy way out just to say it's dialectical. But, you know, in the examples I look at, I think um, a case like passion, for example, um, is a word that describes individual workers' relationships to their to their jobs, and it describes it. Me, it intends to describe a certain kind of devotion to to one's work, um, and you can see you can understand very easily the like ideological force of that to blunt resistance to one's boss, you know by compelling you to identify with the firm, with the company. But on the other hand, the problem with that is that it's, it is an idea that is like really, I think, earnestly embraced by many people. Um, and, and, you know, including me, I mean, like including academics, academics are some of the most guilty of identifying their own material and spiritual interests with their work. You know, I mean, we're terrible about that about doing it so um it's not i think it's not something that can be simply ascribed to you know a, a, the, the manipulation of the boss it's something that we kind of um, co-produce and that's i think that's how that's how, sort of how to hegemony works um and so i think you have to think about it as um all of these, all of these words, as part of what Gramsci called the earthworks and fortifications of a of a ruling order, it doesn't mean that they're um, invincible, and it doesn't mean that they're necessarily always very planned out or coherently part of a strategy of domination. But but they are part of a structure of what I would call domination. I want to. Uh, I like the example of passion to sort of illustrate this. Uh these themes because i mean mm -hmm. the idea of devotion to your work has a long history uh in like western culture going back to the protestant ethics stuff where sort of the idea of your work being um for a higher cause uh an otherworldly sort of calling you know mm -hmm. identified as the beginning of of uh modern capitalism and you know as as an ideology that has helped with sort of like the midwife to it but then we have all these other times which i you know throughout the book uh, like 19th century transcendentalists. And at other times, it seems like passion was used uh, to resist capitalism, to resist industrial mm -hmm. labor and whatnot. And it, so it's, it's to me, it's this weird concept that is kind of getting pulled on from different sides, from the capitalists and the laborers, to be simple about it. Uh, and And it seems like today, what you're pointing to is that capitalism is sort of like eaten this idea once again it's sort of eaten its critic and sort of pulled it in I, I, how do you think about sort of the the history of that idea and when is it resisting when is it part of and all that well i mean there there is a sense in which passion um is there there's a degree to which passion is uh, kind of unabsorbable um i think when you talk about um you know, one of the examples I talk about in the book, and so a friend of mine pointed this out. He's a, you know, he's like 
big uh, Marxist and a big Red Sox fan. Um, and so he was pointing out how fandom is something that, you know, it's obviously fandom is commodifiable and, and commodified, but there's also an element of it that is kind of uh, not exactly primal, but somehow, but, but that is um, always, always kind of alluding and always maybe a step ahead of its, uh, its marketers. So there's part of, um, part of the, the appeal of the word is it's sort of volatility, you know, and that's always also been the danger of passion since, um, since, you know, the medieval period, when the word described um, something painful, you know, like the passion of, of, of a martyr, the physical suffering, or when it describes something uh, indecent that had to be managed and controlled, you know, like sexual passion. Um, so, but the but you're right that it's now been, um, it, it's been co-opted in different ways in kind of the white collar or managerial professions in which that's like the Steve Jobs idea of passion where he says, do, do what you love. You know, this uh, slogan that's kind of become a widespread one in, you know, tech industry and other sort of white collar industries that uh, your work should be your life's purpose, you know, an unattainable goal for vast majority of the workforce, you know? Um, and then in, more blue collar working class professions this is where the critique of emotional labor is relevant, where passion is something that a worker must uh, rehearse and perform. And the passions of others, like a customer at a, at a restaurant or a, a passenger on an airline or something, their feelings and passions must be carefully monitored and manipulated and cared for so passion is a very like a lot of the words that in the book it's a very like class specific term it has different meanings and registers in different kinds of uh parts of the office different floors as it were of the uh of the of the headquarters um and but i also like to you know maintain that there's something about um passion that still eludes uh the domination of the workplace or the, the, the prerogatives of the workplace yeah I, i'm not to belabor this point too much but um i'm interested in it because i feel like a lot of people on the left who are sort of uh hip to the way passion is being used uh to exploit mm-hmm. people are kind of calling for you know well one to recognize it as you are and then calling to you know redefine labor again it's like no this is the workplace this is labor that you're being paid for push the passion all the way out of it. And that, yeah, I hear that as a critique, but it feels like it's we're when we do that, we're missing one of the key, like Marxist critiques of capitalism, which is that of alienated labor. When we agree to totally say, you know, yes, there should be no passion involved here. Let's make it a clear economic relationship with the boss. Uh, Are we like forgetting the critique of alienation? Are we like re-entrenching like how alienated work is today by totally pushing that out? Shouldn't we be uh, thinking about how to integrate passion into work so that we can, I don't know, isn't, isn't that one of the ways we overcome this nonsense? Yeah, but the, 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 the point of the Marxist critique, I think, is that that only happens after, um, that, only, that only is possible under socialism, <laughs> you know? I mean, you can't have 
uh, you're kind of by nature alienated uh, under capital, uh, not by nature, but by circumstance. And so if you attempt to restore the sense of, you know, a, a you know, devotion to one's, to one's work, the sort of dignity of one's labor, um, without kind of changing the material relations of the exploitation that define labor under capital from a Marxist point of view, then you're, uh, then that, then you're, just, that this is just a sort of ideological, uh, camouflage. And, and you can see how, like, how, how it's been incorporated is an example of, I think, how that critique is basically correct. So, you know, when, um, uh, the, the, Abraham Maslow, this, uh, psychologist who reappears a lot in, in my book because he's a big feature, a, a big figure in the post 1960s, uh, incorporation of kind of countercultural, um, cultural critiques of capitalism by mainstream managerial thinkers and, 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 and mainstream firms. So the, the, the critique of, you know, the capitalism is stifling and that office culture is boring and conformist and that the suburbs are a place of conformity and so forth. That kind of critique of the office, the square office worker. Um, so the idea, so the move then is to uh, encourage m employees to be more self-directed, to be um, self-starters, as you know the uh, every job ad used to say. Maybe they still say that. I don't know. Um, to to um, to find your like your true calling to be to find to do what you love and to turn whatever you do into something that you love, even if you are sorting something in a mail room or, you know, just pushing papers or doing data entry or something. Um, and so that, so, you know, like the, this is the, like the Don Draper thing, you know, at the end of Mad Men when he's like meditating on the Pacific coast and trying to, you know, find his calling through advertising or, or whatever that, that kind of incorporation of the critique of alienated labor into the dominant, feature of at least a certain sector of the working of, of working life. That's what happens if you address this sort of alienation problem without actually addressing the underlying material relations that produce alienation. Right. And I am, so I'm all for your point. I just think you can't really fix it unless you fix the other, the other things first. Right. And what I, what I want to say is that there's, you know, there's these different strands of critiques that, you know, critiques of alienation, critiques of exploitation, critiques of, uh, the destruction of sort of social bonds. And I'm afraid that sometimes we split them and we choose in one moment, you know, in the sixties, maybe the, you know, the college kids were maybe the exploitation poverty critique had been cut down a bit in the U S in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so they pushed the alienation critique and then capitalism sort of has got this hydraulic way of responding where, you know, we'll give you a, we'll give something seemingly on the alienation point and we'll pull back on the exploitation. I, I, I don't want to um, keep going on this point too much, but uh, I think the book is a great, um, the way you explore these words is a great uh, beginning to think about all those things. Yeah. And I mean, I think they're, in, you know, I'm, I am like a fan of, uh, you know, the early Marx and I'm a fan of people, the kind of critique you're talking about, the sort of critique of alienated labor. So I'm, I'm not, 
someone who wants to sort of choose a team there in terms of I'm not an econo- I don't want to be economistic, nor do I want to uh, overlook um, economic relations. I mean, I think if you're again, if you're like a, doing a sort of Marxist critique, which I think I'm doing, you have to you have to um, do it in a in a capacious way, which is true to this to the dialectical spirit of, the, of Marxism. Be be open to all of these sort of dynamics. Right. Let me let me move on to another uh, theme in the book. There's a lot going on with uh, bodily metaphors in in some of the keywords that you uh, identify. Yeah. Uh, the body. The body talk. The body talk. You know, people are supposed to be flexible. They pivot. All these kind of words. Can you can you tell us first of all what is up with body talk, and could you maybe talk us through a word or two uh, to show us? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things about it, is, and it's an example of the way that the laboring body um, has kind of disappeared from the way that uh, business explains itself to itself and to and to everybody else. So the irony, of course, is that um, companies, firms, are described more often as vulnerable bodies than the people who work for the firms are. So there's a kind of, so in response to your question, what's up with it? Part of it is just, uh, for me, that kind of basic irony um, of the laboring body disappearing in the face of the corporate one. Um, so as a good, you know, a good example would be nimble. Um, so the nimble is a, is a word that um, I think most people's association with the word nimble is certainly true for me. And when I mention it, you know, when I ask people like what they associate with the word, um, many people cite the nursery rhyme, you know, Jack me nimble, Jack me quick. Right. That it's a it's a somewhat um, arcane word in most contexts, except in uh, in, in except in sports writing, which is where where it's kind of disappeared, and then in um, like middle brow book reviews, where nimble is a is a word that people use to describe someone's lively prose style, like the New York Times book review. Someone there's always somebody every week whose prose is nimble. It's like a kind of smart sounding way of saying someone is a good writer. <laughs> and then. Um, and then in, uh, to describe corporations that are cutting labor costs, that's the other way which is used. So it's, it's, it used to appear only in the sports section, like until the 80s. And now it really appears only in the business section or in, in economic news reporting. And um, it's, it's kind of a, a synonym for efficient that's usually paired with its opposite, which is like bloated or a behemoth. Um, so General Motors, you know, in 2009, when uh, the bank, the Detroit um, automakers bankruptcies, the, I mean, Chrysler and GM's bankruptcies, they were described as being these behemoths and bloated. And I, and I always heard in that implicitly a kind of, uh, you know, East Coasters stereotype about the Midwestern body, you know, like these kind of chubby, these chubby guys from Indiana or Michigan or something. And, and also the sense that they've been living high off the hog and kind of earning unearned high wages. 
and this implicit comparison to the kind of stereotypical Asian competitor with those companies. So there's a way in which like the body is invoked again, kind of um, symbolically uh, without being really visible as a, as a person and nimble is a way as at, at the simplest level, it's a euphemism for, um, for job loss and for labor cuts. And it's, but it's it's an example in which a laborer's, um, exploitation and the suffering of the unemployed disappear in the face of this supposedly athletic, dexterous, um, spry young lad, General Motors, leaping over the candlestick, you know? Right. And <laughs> you uh, mentioned before, and I'm curious, I mean, the, just the places there that you cited where it's being used from the New York Times book review to people talking about bankruptcy uh, in Detroit. I mean, it does seem like these words have this weird migratory sort of thing where they can jump from this to describing this concept to this. And I, I know it's a tough question, but like, how does that happen? Or well, I know there's aren't clear like intentions, as you said up front, it didn't seem, it doesn't seem like there's like necessarily clear, you know, puppeteers, uh, uh, putting these words in people's mouths. But how do you think it like travels between these places? Do people just use it more? And then the metaphor is common and then people apply it to different places or what's up with the traveling of these things? Yeah, I mean that that's a that is a good question that I don't have a great answer for because there is something about it that's a bit um uh mysterious, you know, uh how these kinds of how these kind of, you know, hegemonic ideas sort of bubble up and where they bubble up from because they don't get um they don't get just announced by you know the uh ruling class council or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, like this is the new style guy. So, um, so I think of them as, you know, Williams does. And as Valentin Voloshinov, the Soviet linguist that Williams is very influenced by, does as, as being kind of like, I mean, I think it was being kind of like fossils, like records of a, of a, of a kind of dominant way of thinking. Um, and that doesn't mean that, what that what that what I think that emphasizes is if you just sort of change the words that people use and just like stop saying innovation all the time, that won't have any kind of magic effect on the way that um, tech economy operates, for example. But they the words do capture a certain kind of dominant thinking, and I think they you know they part of the ways in which they spread is just sort of through. Um, the way like other kinds of conventional wisdom just get circulated, you know, people who want to sound smart always describe layoffs as a company needing to get more nimble. That's just like, you know, if you read the New York times and you're a sort of educated person, that's just sort of becomes your vernacular for, uh, for saying that, or you, when you want to describe someone as being really, um, proactive you start calling them entrepreneurial so you know it's just it 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 spreads the way conventional wisdom does or common sense does it's hard kind of hard to document how that exactly happens but um it's what i'm trying to do is i guess trade sort of trying to document what that conventional wisdom is and and what in most cases it means yeah and i want to maybe a little down the line i want to ask you a bit about because it's got this such a mysterious nature like where are the opportunities for 
when we understand these words better, where the opportunities are for reworking our vocabulary or what, what that even yeah. look like. I, I want to ask you about that in a moment, but first let me just get to the another theme that you have throughout all these keywords. I mean, moral was the first one, which we talked a little bit about passion. Then there's these bodily metaphors. There's all this aesthetic stuff, which we sort of talked about, the kind of artistic um, uh, words that, that, that are coming out a lot. But I want to jump to the last, which is about um, tech stuff and sort of a lot of words oriented around technological solutions for everything, uh, you know, solution, mm-hmm. data, hack. Uh, what's what's What kind of work are those words doing for us? Uh, could you tell us about a few of them? And, and what is tech doing in our like common sense today? One of the things that the technological words do is the same thing that um, all the words do. And it's, in a sense, the same thing that sort of bourgeois ideology has always done, which is again to evacuate labor um, and to frame value and you know ingenuity and all good things as emanating from from management or from nowhere in particular. You know, just as if uh, the, the the nice things that we see around us and enjoy just sort of fell out of the sky. So one of the and and look with the with tech that's especially powerful just because of the nature of um, contemporary computer software and computer technology, the fact that it's so fast and it allows us to do so many things and that so few of us actually understand how it does those things. So it does seem to happen by magic and it does seem to happen without any engines firing or coal burning or people working, you know? Right. Um, so smart the the idea of smartness is a great example of that um you know so smart used as an adjective to describe a technology it's efficient it's clean it's orderly it's un it's not passionate it's sort of the opposite of passion in the bad sense it's not unruly or out of control um and it's not prejudiced it's above human bigotries and um and judgments. So like a smart, the idea of like smart uh, technologies for local government, part of the appeal is that they will, you know, um, because they're, because they're run by computers, they won't, um, they won't be racist or or sexist or something, you know? Um, And then the, and then also the idea that they're autonomous so that they operate um, without our, needing to manage them and and they operate kind of independently of us so um that is one of the ways in which they there's this kind of sense that like the the intelligence of the technology is operates independently from um, from anyone's sort of exploitation or hard work one of the things i find most interesting and frustrating about the book is that I feel like I can't escape this language. Um, as much as you become conscious of it and I've, you know, thought about these words, not all of them, you know, to some degree, uh, I can't escape them. I, uh, either I have to use them when I'm talking to someone, people around me use them all the time, even close friends, uh, particularly like the wellness language, uh, you know, from where I come from, there's so much, nonsense going on about meditation and self-care and i haven't been able to exactly uh 
put my finger on why it bothers me. Um, but then I find myself sort of like doing the same practices. And particularly, like you mentioned at the beginning, like in academia, there's so much of this labor of love idea. I, I wonder, first of all, how you think about the fact that we're all tied up in this language is necessarily something we all are t- caught in. Uh, and mm-hmm. Uh, that's not really a question, but like, what do we do with that? And uh, how do we think about it when we're, we're, we're implicated? Yeah. I mean, I think the uh, implication is very important. I mean, it's something I really wanted to emphasize in the book itself, that it's not just, um, these aren't just sort of Silicon Valley buzzwords or office buzzwords or things just stupid people say, or, you know, things that advertisers say. Um, but they are part of not only, um, you know, a common vernacular that we all share, but they're also kind of, in a way, even part of, uh, life on, in language on the left or in ostensibly, ostensibly intellectual or countercultural milieus, you know, like academia sometimes purports to be, and like probably you know from Austin, which is what I think you were alluding to earlier, right? Right, right, and I actually grew up in Silicon Valley, so um, <laughs> you know, yeah, okay. you know, I've got friends in tech, and even those that aren't are are so obsessed with their wellness. Yeah, so so I, I guess you know, what do you do with it? I mean, part of part of what I'm um, trying to do with the the book is to, you know, honestly, like a big objective was just to and this is part of how it originated, you know, it originated out of me just complaining to somebody. And then it um, carried on as a blog where I would complain sort of into the, not really into the void, but into like my Facebook feed and Twitter feed and people, my, you know, and I would write it for the audience of my friends. So part of what I wanted to do was just sort of like a, so sort of project and shared reflection and shared agony and, you know, sort of solidarity of, uh, of mutual, mutually shared contempt, you know, something very important, I think, and not, um, not something that should be dismissed too, too quickly, but to the answer, like, what do you do about it? I guess, first of all, just kind of be, um, you know, vigilant about the ways in which, um, an, an ideology of, hierarchy of overwork um, and of subservience to bosses kind of has been smuggled in to so many kind of spheres of life that seem antipathetic to, you know, to the office or to, to, uh, to business or to capitalism. And that's just part of the way, you know, that's part of a long pattern of, um, you know, capitalist culture incorporating sort of, uh, what has opposed it, you know? So this is just, you know, a kind of continuation of that uh, older critique. Um, and, but, you know, like what, what I've, what I've thought about when people ask like, well, so what, you know, what kind of, what language should we use or something? And I always really say that, you know, the I, I don't want to be like, 
the language police or anything. You know, when people are talking right, to me, sometimes right. they'll um, just like having a conversation with people. Sometimes people will say like, Oh, that, I, you know, I really thought that movie was like kind of innovative in a way. And then they'll like pause and just be like, Oh, sorry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> I have a reputation for being, you know, real curmudgeon about people saying right. innovation. So, um, you know, I, like I, I don't care about that. I, I mean, personally, I don't think I've used the word innovation in earnest in years but that's because of my particular obsession with it um but the thing about like you know looking into the history of this you find that there was a sense in which um the defenders of the free market in the aftermath of uh the war the second world war in the aftermath of kind of large-scale social and economic planning especially in the u.s um, we're also as annoyed as I am by words like social security and planning in the new deal, you know? Right. So they were like the me of, uh, 1946 and their project then was to kind of develop a different relationship to the market, um, in which freedom was something you acquired through the market rather than in defense from it or in uh, refuge from it. So they didn't necessarily have a, a vocabulary worked out. You know, they didn't say like, what we need to start saying is innovation more often or entrepreneurship, but that's kind of what that, that's the vocabulary, the vocabulary that formed out of that critique of the existing language and culture of social planning and so, so, you know, social democracy in the U S and my sense of it is like, well, if there is a large movement to tear down the kind of neoliberal order in which we live and to, re to rebuild some degree of the rights that have been lost, a new vocabulary will form out of, to, with which to express that desire. So I don't know what it'll, what it'll sound like. You know, I don't know what the innovation of a, more just United States would be. Um, that's kind of to be determined. And I hope it's to be determined. Right. And I mean, I, obviously there's like things that have come up, like uh, <clears throat> just occupies 99%, 1% business. It strikes me as, as an example of right. just, you know, innovative language that uh, is reframing how we think about things. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great example. And, you know, I'm thinking, I also think about the line from, you know, Marx says in the 18th Brumaire about the poetry of the, the revolution of the 19th century will take its, what has he say? Will take its uh, language or its poetry from the future, not from the past. So there's a sense that uh, the language of a different order isn't one that we don't speak yet, you know? And um, before, and you know, before, you know, fifteen years ago, the one percent wasn't a phrase that anyone knew, and now it is a phrase that everyone knows. And so, that's an example of that process, and in, in in it's in slowly doing its work. I think. Right. As long as we are, you know, creative in our solutions towards language in the future, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just one of the uh, final questions I want to ask is: um, Do you know where you're going to go from here? Uh, do you have like a next project ahead? Um, are there ideas that, that really interest you that you want to write and think more about? 
Um, well, sort of. I mean, I am thinking about doing a longer book project about uh, innovations history in the 20th century, kind of an expansion of the argument that I make here that uh, gets deeper into the the history I just sort of sketched a second ago of the post-war right wing um, and their kind of cultural struggle against the New Deal, uh, which is where I would date the modern history of this language that I'm talking about in the book, but innovation in particular being the kind of major concept that comes to express this ideal of liberation and freedom through market relations, basically. So that's, but, you know, I'm, I, I was doing, I've done a lot of research about that, um, did research about it at the Hagley Business History Library in, in Delaware, which is a great place for this sort of thing. Um, but I, I'm, at the moment, I'm kind of relaxing <laughs> from the process of figuring, figuring out this book. So, but that's the next kind of, the next likely step. I'm trying to, to learn, you know, it's very hard to like take some of the lessons of my own book to heart for myself, you know? So, um, one of the things that is an overwhelming theme throughout and it's, it combines the body talk and the, the moralistic language um, and also the tech stuff too is just this sense that one should always be working, you know, and that working is um, where you find yourself and working is your sort of calling in life and that therefore you should always be um, developing your next project, you know, to put it in kind of the, the terms of uh, elevator conversation and academic conference, right. you know. <laughs> what are you working on now? So um, I'm trying to, as hard as it is, sort of take that to heart and sometimes be content with. I'm not really doing it. Right. <laughs> I wish I could do the same. With, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you have to you have to put food on the table, but you know, I'm not. I'm trying to just sort of go to work every day at the moment. But that is. The innovation book is kind of on the horizon. Cool. Um, well, so we'll close out with that. I want to say uh, thank you to John Pat Leary for coming on. The, the book is Keywords, The New Language of Capitalism. It is uh, fresh and exciting. So go get it. Thanks a lot for coming on. You can get it direct from Haymarket Books. And uh, I think you can get it cheaper on their website than you can get it from Amazon. So get it there, if not at your friendly local. Great. Thanks a lot. Hang on. Yeah.